Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you so much, Lord, for being with us in our first presentation. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be here with us now once again. Please guide us, Lord. Help us to understand your word better, uh, that we might be more prepared in these last days, Lord, to take a stand for you and for your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amazingly, the book of Revelation describes the rise of America. Now, Bible prophecy does not describe the rise of every nation that, uh, that has ever come about. Nations are mentioned in prophecy not because of their size or because the might of their army. They are foretold because of their relationship to God's overall plan. When a nation or ancient kingdom plays a significant part in the fulfillment of God's purposes, that empire is described by the Bible prophets. So to understand the reasons God foretold the rise of America in prophecy, we need to go back to the year 1776. In Philadelphia, at the Continental Congress, a debate was going on to determine the future of the colonies, the future of America. The, the debate was whether or not the United States should declare its independence from England. The decision, the discussion was intense. The date was July 2, 1776. The debate went on for most of the night. And when the vote was taken, it was deadlocked. Delaware had three votes. And one of the Delaware uh, delegates voted for independence. And the other one voted against independence. And one delegate was at home on his farm. <laughs> it was raining and the roads were filled with mud and so he couldn't get there. But there, there was a message that went out from the Continental Congress and it spread like wildfire throughout the eastern seaboard that the vote was deadlocked. So this one delegate sensed, I have to get there. I need to be there to place my vote. So he mounted his horse and he rode through the night, through the mud and through the rain and he rode all night, arriving the next day just in time to cast his vote for independence. And there's a story told uh, of a little boy and his grandfather. And they were there that day, and they looked through the keyhole door to see if the delegates signed the document. And as the story goes, the father, or sorry, the grandfather was a bell ringer. And if they signed the document, grandpa was going to ring the bell for liberty. And as the delegate from Delaware arrived, the little boy looked through the closed lock door. He peered through the keyhole and his grandpa kept saying, they're not going to sign it, they're not going to sign it. And the little boy watched as the deciding vote was cast that day. He watched the historic vote for independence. And he began to shout to his grandfather, ring grandpa, ring for liberty. And the bell sounded for liberty that day. And for the first time in history, a nation born on the principles of religious freedom was established. The United States Constitution guarantees both civil and religious freedom of all, to all of its citizens. And according to the First Amendment, the free exercise of religion is every individual's God-given right. And we praise God for the freedoms we have in this country. Amen? It is a huge blessing. But will these historic freedoms ever be challenged? Will church and states ever unite in the United States of America? So does the Bible mention the United States in Bible prophecy? Well, wouldn't it be strange for God to raise up a nation committed to the ideal of democracy and not mention it at all in Bible prophecy? 
especially since our country was founded on the principles of religious liberty. We see in the book of Revelation that Revelation describes the great empires that had an impact on Christian history. Now, we've, we've already mentioned that the Bible doesn't mention every empire uh, in the world, but it mentions the nations that dramatically impact God's people and that have a significant part to play in the plan of God. The Bible, the Bible brought Babylon into view because Nebuchadnezzar attacked God's people in Jerusalem. The Bible brought Medo-Persia into view because Medo-Persia would overthrow the Babylonian Empire and let God's people go free. Greece united their empire with a common language for the gospel to be proclaimed. And the entire New Testament was written in Greek. And the gospel spread like wildfire at that time. Jesus was born in the days of, 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 of Rome. And he lived and ministered and he died in a Roman world. And the Roman church state of the dark ages, they compromised truth. We've seen that. They persecuted God's people and they opposed the true gospel. In Revelation chapter 13, a new beast is described, and it's different from the first beast in this chapter that we saw in our first presentation. It says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Now let's review just briefly. I know we just covered it, but what does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? Represents a kingdom. Daniel 7.23 says, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. So beasts in Bible prophecy represent kingdoms or nations. They represent world empires. And we've seen that the lion with eagle's wings represents Babylon. We've seen that the bear represents Medo-Persia and the leopard represents Greece. The dragon-like beast represents Rome. And in our last presentation, we saw that water or seas represent people, according to Revelation 17, 15. It, it represents a highly populated area of the world. It says, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw which, where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So when a beast comes up out of water, it's, it's symbolic that it is coming up out of an area of the world that is highly populated. So let's take a moment just to review some of the stuff from our first presentation here tonight. We saw that this power would grow up out of Rome and uh, out of the pagan Roman Empire, and the papacy did. Second, it would be a worldwide religious power, right? And the Roman church is. Third, its leaders would claim equality with God and the ability to forgive sin, and the Roman church does this. And uh, fourth, at times the church would persecute. We've seen that it indeed did that. Fifth, its most exalted title vicarious Philly day would calculate to 666. Sixth, it would be a power that would reign for 42 prophetic months or 1,260 years and then receive a deadly wound, which would later be healed. And it continues to gain power to this day, as we've uh, mentioned. We also saw that the 42 prophetic months that, that uh, you times that by 30 days, and that's how you come up with 1,260 days or years. And that is because one prophetic day equals one literal year. We saw that this time period of the 1260 years began in, in uh, AD 538. And that was the year that Justinian, the pagan Roman Empire, emperor, gave the Pope of Rome both civil and religious authority. This was very significant. In that same year, Justinian defeated the last of the barbarian tribes that was warring against the papal power. Then in 1798, 1260 years later, uh, Napoleon sent his French general in and captured the Pope, and he died in exile. 
So that's our review of the first beast of Revelation 13. Now there are three questions that we need to ask about this new beast that we're studying in this presentation. Question number one, where does this new power arise? Notice in Revelation 13:11, it said that it, it comes up out of the earth. Now, friends, if the sea represents a highly populated area, then the earth would represent a relatively unpopulated area of the world compared to the nations of Europe. So the beast that, rises, uh, that arises in an area of the world that was previously unsettled by nations previously mentioned in Bible prophecy. So question two, when does this power arise? Revelation 13, 10 says, He, that is the first beast, who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. So the second beast of Revelation 13 arises around the same time that the first beast is going into captivity. And we saw just a few moments ago that the first beast went into captivity in 1798. So this power would come up around that same time period arising in a relatively unpopulated area of the world. And for more than a century, Bible students have seen the unique fulfillment of this prophecy in the United States of America. And this leads us to our third question about the beast, and that is, how does this power arise? Well, Revelation 13, 11 says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. So this beast rises up around the year 1798, and one of his distinguishing characteristics is that it has two horns like a lamb. Now, incidentally, a lion is an old or mature beast. A bear is an old beast. If it, if it wasn't, it would be a bear cub. That would be a young, the, the younger version, right? Uh, a leopard and a bear are also old beasts, but a lamb is a young beast. It's a young animal. So it would represent a new kingdom, a new nation that would come on the scene of history. So here's a new nation rising up in a relatively unpopulated, unpopulated area around the year 1798, having two horns like a lamb. Now notice what is not on the horns. There are no crowns on the horns of the second beast. And, and remember that the first beast that we saw in Revelation 13 had crowns on its horns. Remember in Revelation 13, 1, it says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns. So the powers of the old kingdoms came from the crown or from the kings, the monarchies. Crowns indicate kingly authority. But this new beast that arises does not have any crowns on the horn, and that is significant. The absence of crowns indicates freedom. The second beast that comes up does not come from a king. Uh, it has two horns, which represent a, de a democratic, a republican form of government, it has two horns, two external principles that it derives its power from. Horns in the Bible are a symbol of power. They indicate that this beast derives its power from political and religious freedom. Now, what are two foundational principles of American law? They are religious and political freedom, right? We, have, we are blessed to have those two freedoms at this time. So here is this new power. It arises around 1798. It arises in a relatively unpopulated area, not previously occupied by other biblical nations and empires. It's being carved up by God 
uh, to champion political freedom where people can speak and worship according to the dictates of their conscience. And third, it has no crowns on its horns. The lack of crowns indicates that this power is a free power. And so we see that this beast is like a lamb-like beast, the Bible says, and it springs up quickly to prominence and power. Listen to how uh, G.A. Townsend, a historian, describes the rise of America. He says, the mystery of her, that is America, coming forth from vacancy, like a silent seed, we grew into what? An empire. So America came up out of the earth like a silent seed. What an appropriate description of America. Yes, friends, the United States of America fits the characteristics of this prophecy. It arose around 1798. It arose in a relatively unpopulated area of the world, and it had a different form of government. It had no crowns on its horns. It was indeed a young nation, like a lamb, not an old beast, and it would quickly rise to a position of worldwide power and influence. And the only nation that fits these characteristics is the United States of America. It rose on time in the right place and in the right way. And it's a beautiful country, isn't it, friends? The land of the free, home of the brave. And I praise God, friends, that the, the beginning of America has, has been a wonderful thing. God has preserved liberty up until this point, and we are grateful for that. God indeed knew what he was doing when he raised up um, a nation that would champion religious freedom. And I wish, friends, that it would always be this way, that we would always have these freedoms here in America. But unfortunately, the scene changes according to Bible prophecy. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. So notice this beast starts to speak like a dragon. But how does any nation speak? Well, a nation speaks through its laws, right? The laws that it passes. So could it be in the, that in the, a time in the future, uh, that a time is coming when the fundamental freedoms of America may be eroded? Could laws be enforced that prohibit our ability to worship freely? Well, friends, the times that we miss our freedoms the most is when we lose them, right? Sometimes we don't realize how good we have it until we lose those freedoms. Could it be that we have taken these historic freedoms for granted? Does the book of Revelation describe the events that will lead up to this erosion of religious liberty, this union of church and states? Indeed, it does, friends. Notice what it says in Revelation 13, 12. It says, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So this second beast, the United States of America, exercises the authority of the first beast, the papacy, whose deadly wound was healed. And here we see that there is an alliance that takes place. And it's been some years now since, this, uh, since Time Magazine ran this cover article. It talked about this holy alliance where President Reagan and former Pope John Paul II worked together to bring down communism. Think about that for a moment, friends. The most significant political change of the last 100 years was engineered by the leader of a church 
and a leader of the most powerful nation on the planet. Interesting. The Bible foretells that there will be a union of church and state in these last days and that there will be an erosion of religious liberty. The book of Revelation says that something unusual is going to happen in these last days. It says that the devil would do something to create this alliance. Revelation 13, 13 says he, who would this be? This would be the devil working through the land beast, performs great signs so that he makes, he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So notice the word fire. Some people are confused by the symbolism of fire. In the Old Testament, a pillar of fire led God's people by night. In the Old Testament sanctuary, between the, two cherub, between the two cherubim, the two angels, God's presence was manifested by fire, by the Shekinah glory. Fire is always a symbol of God's presence. But this here at the end of time is false fire that falls. The devil calls fire down and performs signs and wonders. Here's a false Holy Spirit movement. Here's a movement that arises to unite all religions. And it gets, it, its goal is to get legislators to sign laws that pass religious decrees based on signs, wonders, false miracles, and tongues of fire. The Bible says, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. It says he deceives those who dwell on the earth. How might this deception be carried out by the devil? Well, friends, our society is filled with social problems, isn't it? Drugs and alcohol are destroying many of our young people. Sexual immorality is commonplace in our world today. The national debt is at an all-time high, and the economy is on shaky footing. National disasters occur frequently. It's, it's, every time you turn on the news, it seems like something new is happening. Well, friends, what if these natural disasters progressively continue to get worse and worse? What if there were eventually food shortages and riots in our streets? Do you see how it might be possible at a time of national crisis for Satan to initiate a false religious revival based on false miracles uh, designed to unite people under his banner? Do you see how the, the scene may be set? Do you see how well-intentioned Christians could, uh, could, could pass religious le legislation and what that would actually do? Well, the text goes on to say that he deceives them by signs, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So here our text describes an image to the beast. So what is the image to the beast? Well, if I said to you that your son was the image of you, what would that mean? It means he looks like you, right? An image is a likeness of. So the Bible says that the second beast, America, will make an image to the first beast, which is the papacy. In other words, there will be a political religious union and church and states will unite here in America. And when that occurs, religious practices will be enforced. Revelation 13, 13 and 14 says he performs great signs or miracles, signs and wonders, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Notice what Revelation 16, 14 says about who causes these end time signs and wonders. It says, for they are spirits of, of who? 
demons, not spirits of God, friend, these are spirits of demons, performing signs or miracles which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So Satan works through these end time signs to deceive the world to unite against God and his end time people. In the last days, there will be a religious frenzy. People will be rejoicing in these so-called miracles that are taking place around our country and around the world. There will be a religious revival at a time of economic difficulty. The pressure will be put on legislators to pass religious laws. Now, don't misunderstand me, friends. Does the Bible predict that there will be a mighty revival here in these last days? Indeed, it does. The earth will be lightened with the glory of God, as it says in Revelation 18.1. The Holy Spirit will be poured out powerfully. The sick will be healed. But scripture also indicates that Satan will stir up the masses for a false revival in these last days. Why would he do this? Well, because he knows that the true revival is going to come. Now the question is, is how can you tell the difference between the true revival and the false revival? Isn't that an important question? We want to know how to decipher between the true and the false. Well, notice what the Bible says here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. The Bible says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Friends, it's not what people say. It's whether they're leading an obedient life. Love always leads us to obedience. If we love Jesus, we're going to want to do the things that please Jesus. Amen? You see, anybody can say, Lord, Lord, but if they love Christ, that love will lead them to do what Jesus says. Notice it says many, not, not a few. It says many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? They'll say that they did all these things in his name, but look at what Jesus says next. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Friends, I hope and pray that that is not said of any one of us here. Amen? We want Jesus to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Friends, the evidence is not what people claim to do in his name. The evidence is whether the grace of God has led them to obedience and whether it has led them to follow Jesus all the way. It's clear that Satan is going to work false miracles in these days. The crowds are going to be stirred up. Great charismatic leaders are going to arise and say smooth things. It's going to sound real nice. It's going to sound good. They're going to cry out that America is going down. And they will cry out for religious laws that will legislate morality. But the Bible gives us a principle that will help us know the difference between the true revival and the false revival. It's found in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So notice, friends, here, it, it doesn't say that there is no love there. there. There are many religious movements that have a lot of love, aren't there? It doesn't say that there is no truth there. Many religious movements have some truth. The devil wouldn't be able to deceive anyone if he didn't use some truth mixed in with his error. 
It doesn't say that there's no power because the devil has plenty of power to work signs and wonders. The Bible says to the law, that is to the Ten Commandments, to the testimony of Scripture, if they do not teach in harmony with God's word, there is no light in them. That's how you can tell the difference between the true and the false revival, friends. And light is what we want to follow in these last days. So friends, don't be concerned if, these, if, these, if this movement claims to have power. Don't be concerned if this movement is the popular majority in the last days. What you're looking for is light. The light of God's word that shines in his holy word. Now let me ask you a question here tonight. If the devil wanted to unite people religiously in a final movement to legislate morality in America, what vehicle might he use? Well, what vehicle did he use in the days of ancient Rome to unite paganism and Christianity at a time when the Roman Empire was falling apart? He used Sunday. Might history repeat itself? Well, in the ancient pagan Roman Empire, the pagans had their differences from the Christians, but the venerable day of the sun united them all together. Let's look at a quote here from the book, The Two Babylons, by Dr. Alexander Hislop. He says this, To conciliate the pagans to nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated and to get paganism and Christianity now far sunk in idolatry in this, as in so many other things, to shake hands. So paganism and Christianity in those early centuries, they shook hands and they united around one thing. They united around a common day of worship, worship on Sunday. Friends, I wonder if it's possible that the wall of separation between church and state could crumble in our country. I wonder if it's possible that the devil could stir up people at a time of social chaos, at a time of economic difficulty. I wonder if it's, if it's possible that there could be a push to, to destroy the wall between church and state and that Sunday could be the rallying point. Well, some say impossible, Pastor. Well, let's look at some Supreme Court decisions that have happened in the not too far distant past. Let's look at what former Chief Justice William Rehnquist said. He said, the wall of separation between church and state is a metaphor based on what? Bad history. He thinks it's just a metaphor based on bad history. A fascinating statement from the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Here's another one from the St. Louis Dispatch on October 29, 1991. It says, as the second century of the Bill of Rights draws to a close, the Supreme Court is redefining what religious liberty will mean in the third century. Broadly, the court's new approach helps conventional religions while hurting unconventional ones. So this new approach of the Supreme Court helps mainstream religions, but if you're a little different, there could be some problems, there could be some difficulties in place for you. So is it possible, friends, that our historic freedoms could be eroding? Is it possible that at a time of crisis, Sunday could become a rallying point? Indeed, it could. Former Justice William O. Douglas was talking about old Sunday blue laws that were on the books, and he said this, 
He says, it seems to be plain that by these laws, the states compel one under the sanction of law to refrain from work or recreation on Sunday because of the majority's view on that day. So Douglas was concerned about these Sunday laws that were on the books, and he dissented from a vote. Other chief justices were not concerned about this. They did not see a difficulty in favoring the voice of the majority. Douglas's dissent was based on his convictions that you can't legislate for the majority against the minority. And friends, we need to respect the rights of minorities. Amen? We need to respect the rights of minorities as well as the rights of the majority. Then Douglas continued. It said, the state law makes Sunday a symbol of respect or adherence. Ladies and gentlemen, the law of church and state is being eroded in some areas. The Bible even predicts that there will be a union of church and state here in free America and that religious leaders will lead out in this. Well, some still say impossible. This just couldn't happen. Well, let's look at a mini crisis that happened back in May of 1976. In May of 1976, there was a great gas shortage in America. And from what I'm told, I wasn't born then, but from what I'm told, there were very long lines at the gas pump. Does anyone remember this? Okay, there are some people that can testify here. Harold Lindsay, the former editor of Christianity Today, suggested a proposal for solving this gas problem. He said, all businesses, including gasoline stations and restaurants, should close when? Every Sunday, by force of legislative fiat through the duly elected officials of the people. So basically, he said, look, we have a big crisis here in America. We cannot buy enough gas. So if all the Christians would just put pressure on their legislators, we'll just use Sunday as a family day. We will save gas and we will bring America back to God. And that way we will solve this gas problem. Now, friends, that was a mini crisis that, that took place. Just think if a major crisis hits America. What does the Bible say will ultimately happen? Notice Revelation 13, 15. It says, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause. That word cause is like force. As many who would not worship the beast to be what? Killed. So prophecy predicts that our freedoms will be taken away and that no one will be able to buy or sell and that eventually there will be a death decree that goes out for those who refuse to worship the image of the beast. Does anybody who know who this guy is? Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson is a powerful Christian leader who at one time ran for president of the United States. And in his book on the New World Order, he states... The next obligation that a citizen of God's world order owes is to himself. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is a command for the personal benefit of each citizen. Higher civilizations rise when people can rest and draw inspiration from God. And then he says, laws in America that mandated a day of rest, that is Sunday laws, have been nullified as a violation of the separation of church and state. It's an outright insult to God and his plan. Wow. 
Now, I don't want you to miss this, friends. Now, Pat Robertson is a powerful Christian leader, and he says that laws, laws that have mandated a day of rest on Sunday have been nullified, and that he says that this is actually an insult to God. It's an insult that the Supreme Court has struck them down because it violates the separation of church and state. But notice what he says about that. He says only those policies that can be shown to have a clearly secular purpose are recognized. He said, he's basically saying, look, uh, today America is secular, but as Christians, we need to get away from the secularization of America. We need a common day of worship. We need a common day of rest. And he argues that this is what America needs. It needs, um, it needs laws, legislative laws, that enforce worship. So friends, does the United States need a spiritual revival? Absolutely. Our country is becoming increasingly secular year after year. People are turning away from God and from the Bible and becoming more and more secular. So America definitely needs a revival. And uh, we see immorality is commonplace here in America. Yet, so, so should we be crying out for revival in America? Yes, we should. Absolutely. But we should not cry out for revival at the price of religious freedom. And we should not cry out for the state to legislate morality or to bring revival. That's not how true revival works. True revival cannot be forced by, by anyone, friends. Here's how God says true revival will come. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, if God's people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Ladies and gentlemen, true revival in America will never come by political laws. It will never come by Christians putting pressure on their legislators. This will only lead to religious intolerance for those who do not worship in the prescribed way. God is calling for revival in these last days. He says, if my people will humble themselves and pray and repent of their sins and seek my face, then God will send the true revival. And friends, how many of you want to experience that true revival? Amen, amen. I hope all of us do. And that revival of primitive godliness will come in these last days. The revival will begin in our hearts. It will begin on our knees as we truly repent of our sins. Asking God to forgive us of our sins and to restore us and to empower us to do the work that God has called us to do in these last days. God's revival is not based on, it's not legislated by government laws, but it's a revival of the hearts. And when revival of the heart comes, we do not need the state to pass laws to keep the first day of the week holy. Because when that true revival comes, we will want to do the things that please Jesus because we love him. He's written his law in our hearts and in our minds. We will love to do the things that please Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The true revival will urge people to follow the Bible and the Bible only, friends. It will encourage them to follow the Bible and the Ten Commandments, not out of legalism, but out of love to God, love to their creator God. So friends, there will be two revivals. There will be a false revival and a true revival. The false revival is for the majority. The false revi revival will be based on signs and wonders at a time of economic crisis and difficulty. This false revival 
will gather large numbers of Christians together to put pressures on, pressure on their legislators to pass laws, to establish a Christian state that eventually leads to totalitarianism. The second revival is based on a revival of the heart and mind. It's a revival that places the Bible above tradition. It's a revival of the grace of God that washes us from our sins. It's, it is the grace of God that gives us power. It's the a, it's a grace of God that leads us to obedience. It's a revival of all of God's law, including the Bible Sabbath. Friends, God will have a people here in these last days of earth's history. They will have the courage to follow Christ at any cost. They will stand for him at a time of crisis. They will obey him out of love. Revelation 14, 12 describes this group. I know we've read it before, but let's read it again tonight. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Friends, Christ is calling each one of us to be one of his honor guards. He's appealing to us to stand with those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. He's appealing to you to determine in your heart that you want to live for Jesus. Just like Daniel, like we talked about this morning, Daniel purposed in his heart that he was going to stand for God. He was going to stand for truth at no, no matter the cost to himself. And God is looking for that kind of commitment in these last days. So the question is, is will we do it? Will we stand with God's faithful followers in these last days? Will we stand with Jesus? If that's your desire, I, I invite you to stand with me tonight as we close in prayer, that you want to stand with God's people in these last days. You want to stand for what's true. You want to stand for what's right. I invite you to, to stand with me as we pray here tonight. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that there will be a true revival that will take place in these last days. And Lord, we do not want to be deceived by the signs and wonders. We do not want to be deceived and, and follow the false revival. Lord, we don't want to demand uh, revival from our legislators. We don't want to uh, demand uh, the enforcement of laws uh, prohibiting worship, Lord. We do not want to see that happen. Lord, we pray that you would preserve our religious liberty as long as possible, Father, that as many people might hear the three angels' messages, Lord, that they might hear the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, that they might turn to you in these last days. Lord, we have family members, Lord, that are not walking with you. Lord, we have neighbors, we have co-workers that need to hear this message in these last days. And Lord, we pray that you would do a mighty work in our lives and in, in the lives of our family members, our friends, our neighbors. I pray, Lord, that you would use us to share your gospel, Lord, with those that we come in contact with, Lord. I pray that that revival would take place, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out with power and that people would be turned to you, Lord, that people would be turned to the teachings of the Bible and that they would determine in their hearts that just like Daniel did, Lord, that they want to follow you no matter the cost. And Lord, that's our desire here today. I pray that you would Continue to build our faith, Lord, that as we study these things out, as we search the scriptures, Lord, that our faith would grow and that we would realize, Lord, that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, there will be difficult times ahead, Lord, but we thank you that you have promised to be there with us until the very end. And Lord, we pray that we would hold tightly to your hand each and every step of the way is our prayer. And we ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.